For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Mombosk, Colombia. That's five hours south from Cartagena in Colombia's Caribbean region. And this is episode 384 of the Colombia Calling podcast. Some pretty exciting news for you guys out there, and of course for us here. The Columbia Calling Podcast have been nominated in four categories of the Latin Podcast Awards this year. We've been nominated for Podcast of the Year, Best Podcast Out of Columbia, Best Podcast in English, and Best Society and Culture Podcast. So very exciting to be nominated alongside so many great other podcasts. None of this would be available without the dedicated work of our journalist, Emily Hart, who provides the newscast every week and provides news for you about Colombia. And of course, this episode is really about her because she comes back not only in segment two, bringing you the news this week, but also in segment three to discuss life as a journalist in Colombia. And guess what? She's here too in Montpos. So over a beer, we have a little natter. And you're going to enjoy it because it's a lot of fun. So don't go away. Stay tuned and listen to myself and Emily Hart have a chat between journalists here in Montpos over a beer. Bye-bye. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top news stories for the week of July 12th, 2021. The Organization of American States has published its much-anticipated report on the actions of the Colombian government during the last two months of national protest and unrest. In a 48-page document, the body condemned the disproportionate use of force, gender-based violence, ethnic racial violence, violence against journalists and against medical missions, and reports of disappearances, as well as the use of the military. One of the report's most controversial assertions was that roadblocks are a legitimate protest mechanism and therefore are protected under the constitutional right to protest. The report also criticised attempts to censor information around the protests and the lack of clarity around the numbers of the dead and missing. The Attorney General's office documents 21 deaths in protests. Local organisations put the figure at more than 70. Ivan Duca's government reacted by questioning the Commission's mandate and the report's method of contrasting and acquiring sources. Several recommendations were made to the Colombian government, including prohibiting the use of lethal force as a means of controlling public order and the separation of the police from the military of defence. Though in most countries in the world the police are governed by the Ministry of the Interior, or equivalent, in Colombia they fall under the Ministry of Defence's mandate. 
in part a remnant of the civil conflict in which police assimilated military structures and training, as well as a product of the police's ongoing frontline role in tackling drug trafficking. The report may have political and reputational implications, but the recommendations are not binding and do not imply sanctions if disregarded. Meanwhile, Colombia has become the unlikely centre of the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise, who was killed in his home in the country's capital last week. Reports are conflicting and many key details remain murky. Local police say the president was killed by a group of 28 foreign mercenaries, including more than 20 Colombians, all former soldiers with extensive special forces training and recently retired. It is still unclear who organised the attack and with what motive. Of the 28, the majority are now in detention, at least three have been killed, and the rest remain at large. Some of the group reportedly arrived through the Dominican Republic, others through Panama around a month earlier. Police have also identified four companies that paid for the air tickets and accommodation on the island for the group, but have not revealed further details, nor is it clear whether or not there was a signed contract. The group claimed they were not given information about their assignment. Some have reported the group were actually there to protect the president, who had many enemies and had announced a plot on his life earlier in the year, having reportedly not left his home since February. Some say they arrived at the residence after the assassination, having heard a report of the shooting. Others are saying he was killed by his own security, while his wife, who was injured in the attack, rejects this theory. None of the president's security guards were injured during the attack. After several decades of armed conflict, Colombian military personnel have been highly trained and have become a sought-after commodity in the mercenary market. With poor to non-existent state report for the country's many retired military personnel, there are many former soldiers from Colombia who end up as mercenaries abroad, hired by private firms and security operations, some legal actors, others not. Job offers often circulate in WhatsApp groups of active and retired military personnel. Moise's death follows a spate of high-profile killings in Haiti including those of a journalist and a human rights activist, and months of gang violence which has been compared to an undeclared civil war. Haiti's government has requested the United States send troops to protect key infrastructure. Coronavirus cases are finally dropping in Colombia. The average number of new daily cases is now at near 20,000, having risen to over 30,000 at the end of last month. Around 25% of the population has now had at least one dose of vaccine, 15% is fully vaccinated. Colombia has now suffered 112,000 deaths in a population of around 50 million. Those were your top stories for the week. Now back to Colombia Calling with Richard McCall. And we're back. Uh, this is the Columbia Calling Podcast, episode 384. I'm here in Montpos, and our very, very special uh, oh, guest, guest, in the flesh, here in Montpos, is none other than Emily Hart, who has just read you the news. She's here in Montpos, <laughs> and she's on yep. the Columbia Calling podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You're most welcome. It's a real pleasure. Now, well, first of all, we know one another in the flesh. This has never happened before. Uh, it's all been a remote, uh, a friendship, a working relationship over the ether. More, More than, than a year. More than a year. I am immensely grateful and eternally indebted for your, uh, you know, your, the newscasts that you provided that we've only received positive feedback. Only negative feedback was that you were too English. Too but English. I, is, that, is that negative? I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm guilty without any recourse to fixing it. <laughs> I did have a glorious piece of bad feedback from one man on Twitter. Thank you to this man. I won't name him. 
that I had my pronouns in my bio, and therefore he would not be listening. <laughs> you had your pronouns in... Okay. Yeah, too, too woke, too modern, too... Who knows? But um, I have to say I found it rather flattering. I Thank think you I did that, see that. You I might have day. seen that. I think you might even have seen it to me. But it re- it yes, really, possible, I it think. It really made my day. So. Did, uh, I also had someone also uh, tuning out because <laughs> one of my interviews had uh, said that Black Lives Matter. Gosh, uh, controversial. And, and the person went, well, because that interviewee has BLM in their, in their Twitter handle, I won't be listening. I, I wonder if it's the same bloke just scouring Twitter handles to avoid podcasts. There's probably, <laughs> there's probably a group. And then they've probably got a forum, you know. So I mean, a, fantastic. A Reddit page of hatred. Um, <laughs> because that's where the hatred lives, you know. Uh, but anyway... We're here. We're here in Montpos. First and foremost, I, you know, let's big up Montpos a little bit. How have you been finding the last few days? It's beautiful. Uh-huh. Loving it. Very hot, yeah. but pleasurably so. Yeah. Um, went on a tour of the Sienaga, saw 50 different birds. I couldn't now <laughs> name one of, but no. all beautiful. No. I have loved it. And, and you've had a, you know, you, you've uh, made some friends. <laughs> you've had a, well, we can't call it a romantic tryst, but you've made a friend who was clearly trying to impress you. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly drove me about the Sienega during the sunset, um, which was fantastic. There were sort of enormous thunder and lightning on our right over fields of fireflies, mm. sort of as the sun was going down. Beautiful. Big there fan. You go. There yeah. you go. There's that little, little, you know, little spark in your eye there <laughs> for a little Mompos story for you. I would mention that we have had marriages. We've had Canadian backpackers getting on the bus here in Mompos and being sat next to boys from El Banco and, and ended up marrying them. So there you go. Two backpacker friends married two boys from the same town. I have to say, I do. Price, if that was how this one turned out. Uh, but it was a nice couple of hours. I think so. Well, he certainly showed you some of the countryside and some uh, great Montposino hospitality. And isn't that nice? Uh, so Let's I, say so. Yeah. Uh, well, I thought we'd, we would... Well, we got, you know, that's, the triviality's out of the way. Um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here, really. And it's, of course, I know I've had... Um, People on the podcast or listeners saying, you know, who is this Emily Hart? Uh, we should hear from her as well, the news segments and so on. So rather than just having you know, the news, we do you're now a guest here. I know, at risk of completely destroying my journalistic credibility via my personality. I, I am slightly think so. concerned I'm about to detonate the whole thing. But I don't think so. You can. Hopefully not. <laughs> highly recommended by Adrian Alsimer. That was he was the one. He said, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. I have any time. And I said, well, can you find someone? He just went, Emily Hart. I mean, there was no one else. So there you go. That's fantastic to um, And so I've read most, if not all, of the bylines that aren't blocked by, by oh, firewalls. God, I know. Um, I know. And there's some great stuff there. I, you know, there's some great stuff that we can start with. I'm just talk journalism, I think, for the next half an hour or so. Um, you've got some stuff coming out, which we'll talk about to promote, um, but you write for The Telegraph and written for Pitchfork and The Sunday Times and uh, I guess The Culture Trip, I want to say. Yes, yeah, um, a while back. Yeah. Was, uh... When it was around <laughs> and we could still, we could enjoy yeah. culture. Yes, <laughs> quite, when culture and trips were allowed, that yeah. was when I wrote for them. I wonder, I wonder about these websites, you know, it's like, I guess we're all, they're all putting back together now, where are the next places to travel, where are the safest places yes. to travel? I think um, they are re-expanding, um, but um, certainly my contract with them is not re-expanding. No, it is. 
But so tell us a little bit. I mean, you know, Emily, you're from the UK. You're from London. How how did you choose well, just to end up in Medellin? I have to say, all roads lead back to Adrian, um, <laughs> which I don't often say, but it is true in this case. Um, I had a friend who had worked with Columbia Reports on his year abroad, mm-hmm. who had told me a million and one anecdotes, which range from brilliant to bizarre about working with Adrian. Um, and I was very curious, and I had been, I trained as a journalist, but not really committed to it, and I was mm. backpacking in Mexico, and I must have been in my fourth month, I mean, I'd nearly yeah. reached the USA at this point, top to bottom, and I gave Adrian an email, and yeah. said, do you, do you fancy having me in the newsroom for a bit? Um, and then from Tijuana, I flew to Medellin. From Tijuana, there are flights, well, via Mexico City, via right? Mexico because I'd be yeah. very <laughs> worried, given the the relationship yes. between certain areas of Mexico and certain areas of London. There are custom blocks between those <laughs> yeah. two places. Yeah. Well, that's um, cool. Yeah, and then that was six months, and I was sort of hooked yeah. after that, and I've been here on and off ever since. Yeah, no. So I, I was in contact with Adrian today, and that's why I got my phone here like a good Colombian reporter. <laughs> um, he, he, today he learned the most interesting thing. This is just to show you how off the wall. I, out, of, <laughs> out of nowhere, I get this message from Adrian saying, I've always had this thing for Taoism and Kung Fu from Wudan that both turn out to be perfect to learn how to walk again. As if you didn't know, he broke his ankle recently. Yeah. I can actually use Kung Fu techniques and Taoist thought experiments to recover my mobility. I never imagined this. And that's it. That's the conversation. I mean, that's, that's how random I'm Adrian I'm so is. fond of Adrian. <laughs> Physio is also a thing. If, if you're listening, try that first before Kung Fu. <laughs> it's Adrian, I, I expect this totally from Adrian. And, and you know, he's the kind of person that out of, you know, I could have weeks of no communication and then he'll just send me a link saying, you should read this or something. You know, this, I thought it of is, you. It's yeah. fantastic. And the depth of knowledge. Mm. And I think that's how I became hooked on, mm. on the stories and story of Colombia is you can name a person to Adrian mm. and he will tell you the full history of their crimes, alleged and even more alleged. Yeah. Um, it is extraordinary, the, the amount of stuff in there. Now, I, we, need to, we need to delve into this a little more, though. I mean, working for Adrian, it must be an experience. I, mean, I think it's probably a good way of cutting your teeth because he's definitely, he's definitely one to say, listen, this is the story, you know, get out there, do this, do some, do some proper legwork in the street. Yeah, and you know, check your sources. Yeah. I think he, he was once genuinely cross with me, and rightly so, because I wrote a piece based on one source, which you just don't do, mm. and I should not have done. Mm. You know, I was, I was early career, let's mm. say. I was early career. Um, and we did. We, we conflicted a lot. Um, lots of good discussions about uh, gender. I don't know if... Yeah, it, it's clear that I'm a woman, but I am one. And um, I was in a newsroom with two men, and we were, both interns at that time were churning out three articles a day. Mm-hmm. But they were well discussed. We bounced things off each other. If something, you know, didn't go down well with someone, it would be in discussion. It was a really, it was a really good experience. And it was my first, you know, real newsroom experience. Mm-hmm. I had worked on the Hampstead Highgate Express. I noted that on your website. Yes, <laughs> which uh, my greatest piece was about the Druids <laughs> celebrating the equinox. Some of my least good were about, you know, lunchtime on a Tuesday, dog yoga. It's it's a very bougie part of London and the opportunity for hard-hitting journalism uh, 
I, I wouldn't say it was, you know, it's, it was what characterised my time there. So to work in Adrian's newsroom was something very yeah. distinct. Well, yeah. you're always going to get more hard hitting, I think, out of out of Medellin than than <laughs> Hampstead. Than Hampstead, yeah, Hampstead dog yoga. Although I absolutely. presume there's dog yoga in Medellin. I mean, I presume there is. It's quite forward thinking. I, I would have thought yeah. so. I think. Uh, such that one of my teachers at journalism school heard my accent and thought, yes, you should go and report on Hampstead. Um, and, you know, fair, pl- fair play, I know how I sound. Yeah. Very, very English as well. We're all, we've all got crystal, crystal accents here, it's fine. But the, I think, you know, I, you go from one experience to the next. An experience mm. like Adrian and, and churning out three pieces a day is, you know, proper hands-on experience and of course getting the right amount of sources and uh, I've known of other people who have have done their um, what do you call it their experience work their internships with Adrian and they all speak well of it they all do so and it's a fantastic community you know I meet people all the time in Medellin (laughs) who did their time with Adrian he's he's a sort of Medellin journalistic godfather yeah yeah, Um, I hope you'll find that flattering I'm I, not sure. Well, um, I'm sure that he listens to this one. I, mean, that's, 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 I know he doesn't listen to all of them, but I will ensure that he listens to this one. But so then, let's, let's ask, is how did you make, and of course, we are in Colombia, there's always going to be a barking dog or a motorcycle in the background. In fact, I know for a fact that this dog back out there is in heat uh, because she's kept us awake for a couple of days. I'll be taking another way home yeah. then. Uh, yeah, actually, I was in a store yesterday and they had a bucket of sulphur in dust on the floor. And I said, what's this sulphur for? And she went, this is what you put on your dog when, uh, when it's alboratado, and so when she's in the heat, so you put the sulphur. So I could have picked them up. Uh, never mind. That's a side story. <laughs> While I am on the story of journalism and reporting, so how did you make the jump? And it's quite a significant jump, you know, from uh, Adrian's newsroom respectful, you know, very widely read, respected, to the demolition of Escobar's, was it, it, it uh, what's it, was the house, was it Monaco? It was, build, yeah, Monaco it was building. Monaco. And you did this for the Times. I did. This is a big jump. It, it was, and it felt at the time like a miraculous jump. <laughs> um, and I, I did everything you're not supposed to do, is the answer. I... I decided I would go to this event. Uh I'd heard from another journalist, the mayor was throwing a party. The demolition of a building, which I thought in itself sounded silly. And I like things that are silly. I like to laugh. Things that are funny are almost always my priority. (laughs) Adrian, I'd already written something on this. He didn't want it at all. This Mm. was something I shouldn't have been doing. I wasn't at this event. And it was gloriously ridiculous. Mm. All of Medellin's elite were there, fully, fully made up you know, heels, suits, all the best and whitest linens one could imagine. Mm. String quartet, tiny canapes, Mayor reads sort of sweatily and fumblingly a 40-page A4 sheet. Four, okay. Which is, you know, humorous yeah. in itself. Yeah. He comes to the end of this speech about how, you know, Medellin is no longer, <laughs> no longer a narco city and how that era is over and the, the demolition of this building is a symbol of that. Mm. Bash is a button. The building falls. I've never heard a sound like it. Yeah. And suddenly this entire golf club is full of dust. <laughs> and the string quartet is playing blind. We're all blinded. <laughs> These women are sort of pulling eyeliner and dust out their eyes. The canapes are covered in dust. 
And I couldn't stop laughing I behind my dust mask. I mean, you're given eight pieces of merch and a dust mask that makes, you know, a construction worker's dust mask. But I've this never... was clearly an afterthought, was the dust mask. I mean, Absolutely. they would not have planned to say, we're going to have you in within the dust cloud of the destruction. I don't think they thought it through yeah. at all. I thought the mayor's office has a PR person who doesn't know very much about building demolition. Is that Columbia That's scoring? Columbia That's scoring Columbia scoring. scoring. We're Good recording news. this on Friday <laughs> evening, everyone. Um, anyway, so yeah. I went. I went to a cafe afterwards um, and wrote in my journal. Yeah. And you know, I very occasionally look at my own work and think that's not garbage. <laughs> so I typed it up, and against all advice I've ever been given, quite rightly, I sent it whole in the first person to the deputy editor of the time. And they picked it up. I mean, you didn't have yeah. any, any inroads there. You didn't Nothing. know people. And no, no did... introduction. Just, hello. See, I'm 44, I'm... <laughs> turning 45, and I'm jealous. <laughs> I fear if you've got, you know, unfortunately, and I have very much tried to break away from any narrative involving Escobar since, but if you do have Escobar in your pitch line, mm. you know, and obviously they changed it out of the first person, thankfully, when they printed it, so that it seemed more like journalistic work. Um, but I think I got very lucky. Yeah. You know, it was an event that, that was absurd, mm. and it, it went in the From Our Correspondent. Oh, there. Yeah, so it was, it was in print, which was nice, but yeah. I think that particular column looks for things that are personally yeah. reported. So oh, definitely. I'm, I'm envisaging now that string quartet in sort of like a comedy movie or something when someone drops a whole load of flour on a string quartet and they're you know, sort of wiping it out of their eyes and still trying to play. It was, it was terrible. <laughs> and and the, like, the canapes were grey. Like, it was just the most unbelievably poorly thought through event I've ever seen. And, and the idea of the destruction of a building, which is an incredibly loud, unglamorous, dusty, functional occurrence, mm. They had tried to heighten it to metaphor, and I think the, the failure of that, it, it brought me joy, especially having been subjected to 484 pages of mayoral speaking. And it's just, but it's, it's you know, you're, you're not removing the, the uh, events of extreme emotional importance that have taken place there by destroying Absolutely. it. But neither, the truth is, I, yeah. I then did more research into it, and the fact of it was that they were unable to renovate it. It was cheaper to demolish it. Um, but the useful narrative is, you know, we are renewing the city, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And you, you know, you look around at the people there and you think, you have this man's money in your pockets. I was going to say that. The, the you very have the elite. Yeah, there. you know, Senora, the tightness of your forehead was paid for in part <laughs> by the money of the man whose end we are supposedly celebrating here. At the very least, the fashion sense is inspired by the quick money that was involved. At the very, I, I, I think yeah. there's, a, there's a lot that can be picked apart. Mm. But I do think, okay, demolish it, and then what? But does it need to be a high society event? This I is mean, what made the, me laugh, that yeah. the contrast of the whole thing was so, so silly. Mm. Um, and you think, could that money have been better? remunerating the victims mm. of the many, many crimes of this man. You know, yeah. the fact that, that Medellin is no longer living through the 80s and 90s is a good thing, but to pretend that the chapter is completely closed is, is sort of crash, yeah. totally crash, if not 
entirely facetious by, by the mayor and his PR office. This Edificio Monaco, mm. do we know when it was built? Do you have that off the top of your head? Do you know any no. I was going to wonder if there's asbestos in it, because if you're looking at the canapes with this grey dust... I, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, you know, it was an afterthought, the masks. Yeah, I mean, the masks were yeah. about as glamorous as the dust covered. <laughs> I'll be honest. I mean, just wild. But that, I mean, still, a huge story to get out there, and maybe you exercised the... the, the having to mention Pablo Escobar. It was obviously a yeah. piece about him. We've all had to do it. We've all had to put Colombia so long, the byword for kidnapping and cocaine under the narco-terrorist uh, uh, you know, regime of Pablo Escobar. We've all had to do it at some point or another. And I think that's where a lot of my articles start going down, is that I will refuse to put that in a pitch line anywhere. And I will... Yeah. I, I do not deny that there is a relevance to Pablo Escobar, but there are other cartels, and there's also, you know, a complete evolution in the style of these, uh, well, they call them now, like, newly armed groups or whatever, or illicit groups. We know what they are. I mean, but there's a different style to it now. But uh, moving on, though, because you've done some, I mean, you've jumped around. This is what I like the most, is that, you know, and then I see you're on, you know, you've got a, an awesome piece on Chiribiquete where Prince Charles went, no less, yeah, with President Santos. Uh, they flew him out on a helicopter and, and landed on the top of one of those sort of tabletop mountains for him to look at the nature. And they had to bring him back. Oh, they? yeah, they bring him back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where it went wrong. Yeah. Well, he could have come with me several years before <laughs> and gone up the river with a bunch of friends and a boat driver who was in the park <laughs> and as we went up the river he said oh yeah over here we we didn't know who he was at this time mm. he said over here we had uh, ingrid for a few days that's really like i'm going four days up the river with this guy <laughs> and that night we saw the bombing of the of the forest taking place oh, not near not far from chile because we were within the national park but from the southern end mm. and uh, they were bombing and well, they were, the, the government or the Ministry of Defense back then, under the presidency of Juan Manuel Santos, said they had killed a top-ranking guerrilla called Fabian Ramirez, who then turned up in Cuba for the peace accord. So he had, obviously hadn't been bombed. It's not the most successful killing <laughs> no, I've heard of, uh, I'll be honest. I think they bombed a lot of trees. Uh, yeah. Is what has happened. But anyway, this Chiribiquete, give us a little bit of a background about it, because it is a phenomenally interesting story. Yeah, I, I went to a talk um, at the, the Hay Festival, who have a chapter, actually two chapters here in Colombia. Gosh, I think it might be three now. A number of chapters here in, here in Colombia by Carlos Castaño Uribe, who is the top archaeologist on this, as well as an anthropologist. And he is, I have to say, initially I was captured by him. He's known as the Indiana Jones of Colombia. Mm -hmm. And all of his early adventures are sort of him hanging out of a helicopter by a string. He's got a little blow-up boat on his back. He comes face-to-face -face with real jaguars, um, you know, all of which was inevitably cut from the article. But, like, I, I really found him as a figure and this kind of just deep sense of adventure. Mm. And he was abseiling down a cliff and found himself face-to-face -face with two enormous red paintings of jaguars, um, which were what he had been hunting for because he'd seen a smudge on a cliff face a week before, 
probably while hanging out of another helicopter <laughs> and decided he wanted to go and see it. Um, so the, the story was always for me through, through his eyes. Um, of course, local communities, particularly indigenous ones, knew about the painting at every moment since, since their execution, which was 20,000 years ago, some of them. Wow. Which is extraordinary. And they, and they know that because they've done carbon dating on the paint, but also because there are animals in these paintings that are from the Ice Age. So you've got like, woolly mammoths and things? They've got giant sloths, wow. um, which have not been around for a while. Yeah. Uh, certain breeds of giant horse. Um, there's, there's sort of no doubt of when they're from because the, yeah. the fauna that they, that they depict no longer exists. Yeah. Um, quite aside from that, I you know, grew up on Roman myths and Greek myths. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of read them by my parents, obsessed by them. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this whole world of mythology that's mm. come out of the, the Chitty Bikinti paintings and, and the ones surrounding it, um, you know, about particularly the, the jaguar, which is at the centre of the, the mm. cosmology, and the jaguar is the sun of the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's yellow on top and white underneath, and he's got these circles which, you know, represent both, and he is the perfect balance of those two forces, of the masculine and the feminine, and he exists in the world to keep balance. Yeah. Um, just sort of fascinating. It is fascinating. Figure, and the, the jaguar is, you know, who you are seeking when you um, you take a psychedelic shamanic trip. Uh-huh. So like a, a, a yahe or ayahuasca. Right, yeah, and these, these paintings depict uh-huh. plants that we now recognise to be those plants, so, so the the, yeah, because uh, the the jaguar men, as they're, as they're known now, who painted these were not they were a nomadic group, mm-hmm. and they were effectively a shamanic group mm-hmm. um, who went into the area to paint these things. Right. They didn't live in the area. They found no bones, no remnants of any sort of settlement, because this area is seen as incredibly sacred. Yeah, it is where you know the spirits live. So you wouldn't live in there. And local communities um, don't want to live in there. Carlos found trouble getting taken in there. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I found myself very, very captured by the mythological world um, that was conjured by these paintings. And also because it was not only a story about Colombia that didn't involve um, <laughs> the, the, the above named, yeah. um, and because it was an ecological story. So it's got a really big um, deforestation problem that Frontera uh, Colono, um, mm. the point at which deforestation is occurring is creeping very quickly towards, you know, uh, patrimony and sort of all of our heritage, because these are some of the first people to be on this continent. That's it, isn't it? It's that, it's that, it's that nomadic, nomadic group wandering through, and the, that's what I was sort of taken by, the first, you know. Yeah, who arrived possibly through the European continent across the Bering Strait and came down, Amazing. probably through the mountains, uh, down to Colombia. What is being done, if anything, then, uh, to halt this deforestation, this colonial frontier that keeps getting yeah. pushed and pushed? I mean, there are, there are fantastic... NGOs and groups trying to fight it and raising awareness. And there's some fascinating um, satellite imaging. Hmm. There's a few groups that are doing incredible things to track it with satellites. The problem is that it is all bound up with um, 
illicit trade of various types. Um, one can grow initially cocaine, mm. and then one can um, farm palm oil, and then you can graze cattle in a way that later enables you to take title of that land yeah. because you are using it for agriculture. So it, it ties into um, numerous semi-legal and not legal uh, activities, and therefore there are very powerful people and large amounts of money behind the deforestation, which makes it very difficult to stop, quite aside from the fact that, you know, uh, Colombia is still a very centralised country, mm -hmm. and this is a very, quote-unquote, peripheral, I hate the word, but geographically, really? is where we're at. Um, yeah. So, you know, the government is less present there. Well, there, yeah, I mean, state presence is a small military base somewhere mm. nearby, on the river, nominally to, let's say, on the Yari or the Pesai rivers down there, or the Kakita River, to nominally stop the extraction of, you know, uh, precious metals or coca paste from areas. Nominally. Yeah. I mean, that's it. There's, uh, there's a whole lot more problems, but it's, you, you see it when you, know, you see it down there. And again, peripheral. Yeah, I mean, it is because it's just not on a central government's map. It's not Absolutely. going yeah. to be, you know, we see things that happen on the Magdalena River, let's say, but the Magdalena River is, you know, passes 8 million odd, odd people at some point or oh. another, so people know, you know, but no. down there you don't. I mean, that's the no. reality of Colombia when you look at the, the map and say, well, one third is really populated, and then that whole swathe down to Brazil, tiny border with Peru and then Ecuador. It's just not. No, it's and, the, not. and the traffic of goods through there, I mean, illegal gold coming in and out of Brazil is a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, a few people, a few activists working down there told me they spotted members of the Sinaloa cartel. I mean, really, the, the level of anonymity and lack of accountability down there enables it to be a, a real center of international movement mm. of um, <laughs> stuff we ought to be tracking. So... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's hard. I mean, it, I would see that the only way is if there are, is more international cooperation towards it. But of course, then the powers that be or the very big names or families or entities aren't going to want that. I mean, it's the same story repeated mm. dozens, if not scores of times in Colombia. I mean, unfortunately so. Mm. Um, moving on then, <laughs> because you, I love, I love it. You did a breaking news story, which is pretty big, a bit, another big deal. Uh, a breaking news story for the Telegraph at the beginning of the pandemic here, and and, and no one else had it. Yeah, it was um, it was a big one, and it was it was a good one to tell, but it it was horrible. I mean, it was one of those times when a source sends you something horrible and says, do something, mm. <laughs> please let people know about this. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, three lines of information and seven pictures of recently deceased bodies, um, which, which will impel you to do some stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> that will make you uh, stand up and pay attention. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, so, yeah, so I, I started... Um, Oh, and a pamphlet. There was a picture, sort of crumpled picture of a FARC pamphlet oh, yeah. um, or FARC dissident group. Um, and it was saying, you know, this is our quarantine. Mm. These are the rules that we are putting into place. 
for coronavirus. Um, and these are the penalties uh, if you do not comply. Um, and they, you know, certain groups were coming across bars that had a couple of people in them after 4 p.m. and throwing grenades into them. Mm. These were, you know, this was not quarantines as the government was setting them in any country. Um, so you've got dissident groups and armed groups yes. uh, enforcing both, a quarantine. Yes, both both groups identified as, you know, paramilitary mm. and groups identified as FARC dissident groups mm. were behaving in the same way. It was It was, to some, an opportunist way to take more control of the population and also to keep them inside so that there were less witnesses to activities. And, and where was this taking place? Actually all over the country in the end. I yeah. collected about 20 pamphlets. Um, from, I know, and the, the language of it's, them was it's, it's just spine-chilling. Yeah. Um, really spine-chilling. Um, but in, in lots of places and with a, a real variety of groups, actually. Mm. Um, and one of my favourite outlets here, Sia Vasia, mm-hmm. um, really helped me out with a few pamphlets they collected as well. Oh, so we, we kind of put together about, I think it was more than 20 in the end. It was really happening pretty widely and, you know, in the mindset of an armed group, obviously, mm. you know, it's, it's a great opportunity. Um, I mean, it, it seems to me, like, I mean, you're talking as a sort of from an editorial perspective, it's the type of story that I would, you know, if I came across it, I would do. And would be tough, let's say, to get into the British press. Um, for me, I mean, it's, uh, you know, well, first of all, Colombia, but then it would be kind of timely in that it's the pandemic and it's a different slant on it. Mm. But, uh, I mean, you got it in there, which is the key thing. Um, but I guess, I mean, I think we spoke about this at another point that, uh, off, off mic, but uh, it was just a question of getting, getting it published because you felt so uh, responsible. It and knowing, you know, this particular source. I'm not going to describe anything about his life, no. uh, but I, I know that um, he doesn't have contact with other journalists. Okay. This, he would not have reached out to a bunch of people. This was an email sent just to me. Mm. Um, and you know, full disclosure, I was at this point in the UK mm. uh, where I had gone back for you know family and health reasons at the beginning of the pandemic. So I. You know, I, I was doing some weird hours, but I was I was very determined, and you know, not not because I'm like a fantastically hard-headed journalist. Yeah. I, you know, that level of you know violent imagery and the tone of desperation, I absolutely felt I had to get it out. And you know, fortunately, um, one of the foreign editors of the Telegraph, mm. who who is pretty receptive to Columbia stories, oh, yeah. um, and you know, is generally communicative and quite oh. fantastic, was very keen to have it. I mean, you know, I think when you're living in a quarantine and everyone was like, this is the worst thing to ever happen. <laughs> to be able to be like, hey guys, this is worse. I can think of something worse. <laughs> oh look, it's non-fiction. Yeah. You know, um, I think for that reason, yeah, it was a, it was a those, quote-unquote winner yeah. for the editorial. <laughs> those pamphlets though, is, we've had them, mm. I mean, they do get delivered around Montpos in December sure, and yeah. January for the annual social cleansings. Uh, and yeah. they are just the most, as you said, sort of chilling documents. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine who was working at Peace Brigades, they got pamphleted, and she mm. sent me the, the pamphlets. Ah, like, oh, the, you know, and you know it's true. That's the thing. You Absolutely, know these are not empty threats. No, um, although you know, there's there's a small, small black comedy element when you realise how many misspellings there oh. are in them. I, there was one I read that had misspelled the word guerrilla, 
It had one R in it. And, it, and it's got a, like, a date line as though it's a formal letter. Uh-huh. And it just says Farqueria, spelt wrong, and then Las Montañas, mm-hmm. like that's their address. Yeah, yeah, I know, they put that on the bottom. Of... Right, just like, oh. there's, there's something like so, you know, they, there's a very hollow arrogance to yeah. it. And yes, you know, they do, they do have a certain level of power, mm-hmm. but the sort of aggrandizement of it. Those, that, that always the let's say the statements that they used to release when they had a website back in mm. the day and stuff was yeah. de las montañas de Colombia yeah. always ended in, and like yeah you like, oh can we get a postcode yeah. like th- that's the format of a letter um, but it's it's yeah it's hard work oh, it was sickening yeah I really I I struggled really to read those pamphlets they are it's hard it's, it's just too much. you know the most violence I've ever come across in language if mm. I'm honest um, and, and you know knowing that these are not but then this this feathers in quite nicely if we're just talking about words here (laughs) and words and style and stylistic to going from something incredibly violent to something not quite so violent talking about how you've jumped around I mean I did read an incredibly interesting piece in Pitchfork now Pitchfork is a music I think online journal is the way I would put it. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it sort of became one of the most sort of credible places for music reviews uh, some, a while ago when it came out. And people would yeah. all go there for their music reviews. But you've written long-form journalism for them. Yes, I have <laughs> neither excuse nor explanation. Yeah. I have long been a fan of uh, a genre known vaguely as Rainforest Electro. Okay. And that makes it sound terrible, but please click on some of the links in my piece because it is fantastic music, I promise, and I'm going to undersell it horribly. But I was at that point in the pitching cycle, um, which I'm sure you know you will recognize, mm-hmm. where you are trying to come up with ideas and you would sell your own arm. Mm, so I began yeah. to cannibalize my personal interests <laughs> um, and thought, maybe, maybe this music is interesting in a way that isn't just like, me at my death. Um, and fortunately, you know, it is. It's got, you know, it's, it's region-wide, this piece. So I spoke mm. to producers here and in Argentina um, and in Ecuador, um, sort of all over, who, who are, they are part of the scene and they recognize themselves as such. And they work the sounds of the landscape into their music. So Rainforest Electro, yes. I'm going to say in the most brutal fashion, <laughs> Is it your sampling bird song? So some of it is sampling bird song. <laughs> okay. Um, and honestly, some of my favourite ones are sampling bird song. There you go. I think it's great. There's actually two albums uh, by some producers called Shika Shika. Okay. Um, both of which raise money for conservation. So that's the sort of obvious end. Um, and then there's artists like El Buo. Mm, the owl. The, the owl, <laughs> yeah. yes. Better in Spanish, one feels. Um, who's actually British and uh, who used to work for Greenpeace. So it's sort of very ecologically minded, and he will record the sea mm. and then sort of bend and stretch those noises until they become an entire orchestra, percussion, string, and it's all effectively sort of warped and edited sea sounds. Is it like when you, it's like when you, when you slow down a vinyl? Yes, on yeah. The, you know, on the turntable. Right, yeah, okay. and then the crashing of a wave, really, really condensed, will sound like a hi-hat. Um, So there's there's a sort of enormous range of things that are being done, but as far as these artists 
see they they root their music in this continent mm. because obviously electro is seen to be something mm. you know Berlin London New York and they they wanted not to imitate but to create something that genuinely has roots where they have roots. So I heard this last Christmas the nephew of a friend of mine so obviously completely out of my age range talked about what's it called Desert House. Yeah, see, I have no idea what that New is. New ecosystem plus <laughs> musical genre. Yeah, into it. It's like, I'll what are you listen. listening to? Desert House. And I was like, I don't dare ask. It's no, <laughs> like, oh, I mean, oh, very good. <laughs> interesting. I mean, what, what grabbed me about this story was Simon Mejia, uh-huh. um, who is the founder of Bomber Stereo. Yes. So he went on a journey through Colombia, mm. taking sound recordings, mm. and, you know, later turned them into music, and went to various, you know, very rich quite loud ecosystems. And that is the thing about, you know, these forests and these coastal places in Colombia is such a part of the, the experience of being there is the sound texture. Mm. And I think the integration of that into music gives it a very specific it's, character. It can be cacophonous. I mean, if you're there yes. and you let them, I mean, it can be really <laughs> deafening. Yes, I think, <laughs> I think the skill Simon has is extracting certain uh, parts of it in order to, to create music um, around it, and, you know. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, you've really, as I said, you jumped around, you know, yes, from gorillas in the pandemic, from... Something of a magpie. If it's shiny, I'm going to fly at it. And, you know, I'm in the fortunate position as a freelancer. I've got nobody telling me what to write, which at times is obviously yeah. terrifying because it means there's nobody paying you to write at all times. But it, it enables you this, this range. And I, you know, I've had some very generous editors who've allowed me a lot of, you know, trust and mm-hmm. left in extraordinary lines that I only really <laughs> wrote to sort of please myself and sometimes they leave them in and you're like, God, did I did want even, that going did, public? Did they God. even read it? <laughs> did they even read it? I have occasionally asked myself that, yeah. But um, well, you've got something new coming up, uh, another yeah. long form piece, yeah. 11 short pages. It's 11 pages. 11 pages. Where can we find it? So this is in a magazine, which if you haven't come across, you must seek out, called Delayed Gratification. Delayed Gratification. Yes, and they are part of a a movement that they call Slow News. Alright. So they take a three-month period and they will publish on it three months after it finishes. Hmm. Their tagline is, last to breaking news. So the idea is you get something really analysed, really considered. that you know, it just doesn't pop up on your Twitter and it goes in one ear and out the other. Mm-hmm. It's real long form, and I've been a huge fan of theirs for a very long time. But it, it must be by only by subscription then, this one, because you, are you going to find it on? You a can shelf? buy it in. Yeah, you can buy it in in newsagents. Oh really? Um, I'm afraid probably only in the UK. Yeah. Um, they do, however, have a blog on which they publish their big features. So okay. hopefully, this will be online on their website in mm-hmm. a month or so. Um, so this was. I mean, you know, I'm sort of hoping desperately that my career isn't peaking. <laughs> but it is. So. But getting 11 pages of a magazine that I love, um, getting to write about the LGBTQ community in Colombia, mm-hmm. um, which, as a member of that community globally, is very important to me, mm-hmm. um, and getting to, you know, really describe the people that you're talking about, mm-hmm. and then also give a potted history of Colombian conflict for a good. Oh, three pages. Um, so yeah, it was it was a real um, experience in writing. It's about five thousand words, all in all. It's a good. It's, it's a good, good chunk. So, but it, it, I, I know then you know I've 
in the PDF, but we've gone, oh, well, I yes. can't won't really reveal. <laughs> but it's it's based in a small town in Antioquia, so mm. where Medellin is based. Yes. It's called San Rafael. It's called and, San Rafael. And, and you are delving into the LGBTQ uh, History, community. yeah. Okay. So um, I... In El Espectador, mm-hmm. um, I read two lines of, of a piece yeah. about um, a gay collective mm-hmm. called the Chrysalis Collective, who uh, were launching a report to the HEP about their FD transitional justice court, about their experience in conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that sounds really interesting. And I looked them up, and they're just a journalist dream. Oh, really? Just they're, they're fantastic, their personalities are so manifest, they speak beautifully, um, and I ended up in San Rafael for the launch of their novel, which is a fictionalized version of um, what they lived through during the paramilitary occupation of San Rafael. Um, and San Rafael, in the hills around the town, had been a, a FARC rearguard area since the 80s. Um, and the, the AUC, the Metro Block, mm. arrived. Um, they threw flyers out of a helicopter to announce their arrival. Mm. Uh, you know, again, the theatrics of these groups is uh, never-endingly astounding. Um, and then they occupied the town for a number of years, and the paramilitary groups identifying with a far-right social politics um, and, and a, let's call it, particular brand of masculinity mm-hmm. uh, treated this, this collective very differently. Um, than had Park, who had largely left them alone. Um, and this, you know, this group was flourishing. They were, in Antioquia, not an easy feat integrating into the mainstream society. They were organizing events. San Rafael became known as San Rafa Gay in parts of Antioquia. Such was, you know, such was the reputation of this, of this group. Mm. Um, and, you know, the paramilitary effectively put an end to that, and the group are now telling their story, and I was just, you know, profoundly inspired by them, mm. which is always a good start <laughs> with mm. sources. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the piece itself, quite aside from the length of it, was a rough ride, as anyone I live with will tell you, because I got, I got commissioned, and then I got COVID. I went, and then I got gastritis, which I won't go into detail about, <laughs> but uh, you can imagine how that was. Oh. Um, and then I was in the middle of an interview with the main source, and there was a 6.9 earthquake. So the, I mean, the recording is comical. Yeah. We're sort of talking very seriously <laughs> about, about what are war crimes and recognised as such. And suddenly we're both running into the doorway. But being a small town, most of the recording is like us in a doorway. <laughs> and Botero, who is the most fantastically good-natured person I've ever met, <laughs> greeting people in the square, waving as the earthquake continues. Which was mad. Um, the next day, my other main my other main source's mum died, so oh. our interviewers postponed. I just about get home. Another week of gastritis, and then I sit down, sort of triumphantly, to write this piece with my like little Bluetooth detached keyboard, and I start like tapping away, like San Rafael, amazing. I'm ready to go. Five thousand words, and termites come pouring out of my keyboard. And I'm, I'm not talking a couple, yeah. like so many termites. And I'm just convinced it's cursed at this point. I'm not, I'm not a suspicious, like a superstitious person, but we're talking like the plagues of Egypt have been put upon me in my attempt to write about the gay community in Antioquia. Um, however, finally, three months later, 
It's out, and it's got it's got some of my photos of the of the guys in the collective, which are, you know, you can tell by looking at them. They're mm. they're fantastic, and mm. they're you know, this novel is available online if you're a Spanish speaker. Uh -huh. Called Cristalida, um, and it was funded by the um, one of the many arms of Colombian conflict justice. Oh yeah. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful object, and it was co-written by members of the collective. Then yeah. are 90 people strong, you know, the... That's a huge group in a yeah, small town. Yeah, I know. I mean, chrysalis is more than a metaphor. Mm. They are they are rebirthed, mm. and it's, it's really cool to see. And San Rafael's a beautiful little place, but you're not sat there thinking, this is the home of radical gay politics in Antioquia. I suppose it has to be somewhere. I don't know. It has to be somewhere, but you sit and it's it's Wolfiaus and yeah. Tintos and Vallenato yeah. and the clock has read ten to ten since nobody knows when. And it's the sort of thing I, I become mildly obsessed with, with the detail because yeah. I did spend a lot of time in the square drinking Tinto with anyone who would sit down and tell me about the history of the town. And I asked a lot of people. Mm. Nobody can remember how long it has been ten to ten in San Rafael. Wonderful. I mean, you, I, you can't beat it. I love that kind of thing. I love yeah. observations that can be woven into a story, but to really set the scene. Mm. You know, obviously relevant observations. And, and of course, it's sort of the frozen in time type thing on the one side, but the progressive on the other. Right. right? Because it's with a 90-strong collective chrysalis, that is progressive, and more so in Antioquia, which Absolutely. you would not ever have considered. Right, and, and this was the, the launch of the book, was the, the procession of a quilt yeah. with the victims of the conflict. And then it's led into a square mm. where extracts of a novel in which a man is dancing in drag mm. doing Don't Cry For Me Argentina are being read. And of course I just, he is. Of course, I mean, what else? <laughs> it was that and ABBA. Of um, and I, you know, just, I've, completely fell in love with the story and I'm yeah. eternally grateful that someone gave me the space to really write it because it amazing. is well yeah. you see the long form does exist you've just got to find the right stuff in the right place it, it does it's, it's, and you know it's unfortunately it has to be in the most let's say <laughs> slightly specialised almost you know sort of yeah. Uh, that we have to look for it. It can't be. But never mind. That's a, yeah, that's all for another story <laughs> that one. I'm sure we could go on yeah and I, I think as a as a journalist who really likes to like get into a story, I mean, probably as all of us do, I've, I've never been that drawn to the adrenaline fueled like, mm -hmm. can you get this out? And, I, and I've done crime, and I, you know, I found it a bit ephemeral. You do it, and it's, it's important for a minute, and it's gone. And I think that's what I really respect about the slow journalism movement, is that these are stories that stick. You know, this is a magazine that I have they come out quarterly, and I, I keep them, mm. and they matter, and I remember stories. But uh, it will stick around. Right. Uh, I mean, I have my parents send it to me here. God knows wow. how much that costs, given that it's printed on basically cardboard. <laughs> 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 uh, Worth the money. Yeah. yeah. And well, it's a fantastic opportunity to get, I think. Well, I think that the listeners now are going to be very pleased that they've got to know a little bit more about Emily Hart who provides the excellent <laughs> news Gosh, every so. week on, on the Columbia Family <laughs> Podcast. I think, it's, I think it's important, you know, that we, we have cast the net wider to make sure they know who you are and 
and therefore it's a bit more of an appropriation for them knowing yeah well so, i hope they keep listening yeah. often so yeah. thank you uh, thank you for all. coming to Montpos. i've loved it there. thanks yeah. for having me that's all right everyone's <laughs> invited <laughs> But uh, no, it's, it's been a pleasure having you here. It's been, a, you know, I've, my, my, my sons have spotted you around the town. <laughs> All it was on the phone, they yeah, said. Your son said, I saw you, you were on the phone. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, it's a small town. You see, nothing gets by. Oh, I, it, I was I even it. told the other day you didn't have breakfast. I, you know, so. <laughs> I feel so terrible. I had a meeting. I'm sorry. I'm sure it was delicious. Uh, it's all right. It was the same breakfast you had the day after. Then it was so, definitely yeah. delicious. Um, but anyhow, that's another story. Um, listen, let me just take this time to say thank you so much again. Because again, I know the listeners, my stepmother will say, who's listening in the, she's listening in the US at the moment. She gets her Colombian news from you. So well, there you go. Very flattered. Yeah. And that's all she wants to really listen to. So there you go. Uh, we're going we're gonna to sign off now, but uh, say thank you again to Emily for her time. That's Emily Hart, journalist, uh, our news journalist, the researcher, and I would say, you know, pretty, you know, pretty exploratory stuff when you look at <laughs> you know, the different uh, bylines that we've just been checking out in the last couple of years. So I think very cool indeed. So, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. And thank, thank you for having you. me on. Yeah, pleasure. This has been great. Been, yeah. Episode 384 of the Columbia Calling podcast, and uh, we'll be back next week. Our uh, very special guest will be Sharika Crawford calling in from the USA, and we're going to be talking about the Caribbean and other elements of Afro-Columbian populations, I think. I think that's what it is. I have to research a bit more. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So that's, uh, that's us for this week. Thank you again to all the listeners and be sure to subscribe and share as always. Bye-bye.